Voice Nation. Greetings, my fellow Five Tool players, and welcome to a tape measure blast of an episode here on Device Nation. The voice of operative orthopedics. Why all the baseball lingo? Well, we're talking to orthopedic surgeon Dr. Don Buford today, former Baltimore Orioles second baseman, throwing some hot cheese on the topics of orthobiologics and regenerative medicine. You're going to want to hang around for that. Well, we're kicking off the new year. So many exciting things coming. I just know it's going to be a great year, even though, as Karen Carpenter once sang, we've only just begun. Well, here's a little ditty to start your day. Why does that song always remind me of It's a Small World and not in a good way at all? Well, you're welcome. You'll be hearing that in your head the rest of the week. Deep and wide, what's it all about? Quick recap. As the business of medicine wreaks havoc across the land, we need to be dug in deep. Well, dug in deep with who? We love mnemonics as sales reps, so here's one for you. D for doctors, E for employees of the hospital, E for employees of the companies that we represent, and lastly, P for peers. Well, why is that important? It has been my experience that when the winds of change come blowing at an account, the people that seem to be most insulated are the ones who are dug in deep. Well, lastly, what's wide? Wide is all about adding products to your bag that don't necessarily compete with what you're doing already that offer a little insurance against the inevitable contract correction that seems to come our way on our primary source of income, right? Metal and plastic. So let's talk about Deep for a moment. It has been so exciting to bring the voices of successful reps in our space, reps that I know and respect, and today is no exception. We're going to be speaking to Johnny Cafaro. You're going to want to hang around for a while, by the way. Exciting product to share with you. Johnny, a huge Device Nation welcome, sir. Thank you. Happy to be here, man. Thanks for having me. Well, Johnny, I'm really looking forward to your perspective on the deep aspect of this as you've worked both sides of the aisle, not only as an area guy, but as a rep carrying a bag as well. So as we look at deep, let's start out with the D, right? Tell me about your thoughts on what we could be doing as reps to provide maximum value to the doctors. Yeah, I I feel like it's super important. I mean, you're not just showing up to the OR and being that guy and selling and doing the case, it's like, you got to know, like what I did, I got on the surgeon's calendar, him and my, his and my calendar were linked together. And so I could be able to know his schedule. I could be able to know where he's coming from. I could be able to let the staff know what he's doing and coming. You're actually becoming an asset as a, a partner. And I feel like a lot of people don't see that sometimes. It's like, it's a partnership. It's like you're communicating almost more than the surgeon's significant other. And I feel like if you can step out of just being a salesman and actually looking at it as a partnership and making sure that all the T's are crossed and the I's are dotted for that surgeon for his day to go smoothly, and then you become an asset, not a liability for him. And I think that's the biggest thing that I've seen is that I became so intertwined in my surgeon's lives that I could be able to know like, hey, he's coming from here. Let's get this ready. So when he shows up, he knows everything's taken care of. Or if you need to be able to pick him up from an airport or be able to do stuff for him to get to the case, like you're always dialed in and knowing what your surgeons are doing, not just showing up for the cases. I think that's crucial. And a lot of people don't realize 
it goes deeper than just doing the five cases in that day. I love that, Johnny. Not just opening boxes and leaving, but reimagining yep. the whole concept of a non-clinical PA, right? The physician's assistant. Exactly, 100%. Well, that was the D. Let's look at the E as we work our way through this mnemonic. Why do sales reps love mnemonics? I know I live and die by them. Yeah. E for employees of the hospital that covers a lot of ground. The people that are at the front door, central sterile, scrub techs, nurses, purchasing, everybody. What do you think, sir? Yeah, so my biggest take, and I say this to almost everybody that I come across, that everybody from the CEO to the doorman, is very, very important in your job. I mean, you're not going to really deal with the CEO ever really, but he's still an important aspect of your life. But the doorman, I mean, I was working at HSS for a while, flying in and had to get a rental car. And I became really good friends with the valet people because I had to hurry and drop off my sets. And sometimes like they would push you out or like ticket you. But I'm like, hey guys, I'm going to drop off these sets. Here's my keys. And then I would tip them. I would tip them even more and make them feel like they're worth everything. And then they're a part of the team. Like let them know like, hey, you're helping me because of this, this, and this. And then I'd go to shipping and I'd be like, hey, listen, I would butter them up, become good friends with them because I knew if I was going to be going to be late, they would be able to bring my shipment to the rep room or be able to make sure that it's taken care of. Like, hey, Johnny, your package just got here. Perfect. Thank you. And then you get into central processing. Like, hey, you're going to be late. And they already know that the case is coming. So your central processing team's like, hey, Johnny, we got you. We're going to put you in your your sets in the OR for you. And then the nurses, like, hey, I'm always going to be there to take care of your case. So the nurses know that like nothing's going to happen. And so I feel like you have to create a team environment within the hospital of the employees because once everybody feels like they're a part of a team and helping everybody out and being taken care of and being recognized, it goes such a long way. And it has helped me so much in my career. You don't get a long way in the hospital by burning bridges. Great stuff. I really like the idea of making the people in the hospital feel like they're part of our team. Well, let's look at employees of the people we work with, our distributorships and respective companies that we represent. Uh, how do you see our interaction with them? Yeah. So, I mean, for me being in corporate side of things sometimes, and I'm there at the office and I see I go over to the customer service, become good friends with them. And they're the ones who fulfill the orders and get the implants out and actually help pay for the commission. And I've heard a lot of reps like scream and yell, interrogate or antagonize the customer service people where that that's not going to get them. I mean, I've always learned you um, win people with honey, not vinegar. Your business is going to be so much more elevated by you having a support system on the inside. If you don't have any support on the inside, you're not going to go a long way. And eventually you're just going to flame out. But like you have to make sure you're building the relationships on the inside. Maybe you stop by the corporate office once a quarter to let them know who you are and let them know like, hey, this is the situation where I'm usually in. Give them examples of where so they don't feel like you're just coming at them last second. Like explain to them where you're coming from and make sure that like you're getting those relationships with customer service, with the shipping team, with inventory, implant team, or your manager, because a lot of people really don't know the insides workings of what you're doing in your business. But if you can explain it to them, everybody's more than willing to help for the most part if you do it in a good manner, in a kind manner, or explain to them like you're in a bind everybody's willing to help if you do it in a, in a respectful way. Great advice there, sir. I had a very wise manager tell me once, you can't fight City Hall. 
And very true, very true. Well, what about peers, Johnny? What do you say about our interaction with the rep across the hall putting up implants that compete with us? My thing is, is I, I love making new connections and networking. Maybe I'm different and maybe I was very naive when I first got into the medical field because you hear horror stories that like people cut holes into your, your wrappings or because the competition is so stiff. But like, if you can just become friendly with people and see that you can help them in any way, like if you see a rep struggling or you see somebody like needs help, like I was more than willing to help people. I mean, when I very first started at Stryker, I had to go to Walla Walla, Washington, the home of the I've never, <laughs> never even been to this place. A doctor put on a brand new case that I've never even done, a dual mobility. Um, and this was like 10 years ago. And I get to the hospital and there's an, another rep there. And I just asked him the question, hey, man, I'm super new. I don't know anything about this hospital or the surgeon. Is there any way that you could maybe help me? And like walk me through. So he introduced me to the OR staff, the head nurse, the scheduler, the surgeon, because like I asked nicely and hopefully he thought maybe I would return the favor one day when he came to Tri-Cities. And so I felt like a lot of people don't ask for help as well, too, because if you can't ask for help, then like you're always going to think, oh, that person's going to burn me or. But I feel like it goes hand in hand with all these other deep things Like you have to have a kindness about you that you're going to be able to know that you're going to help people and vice versa. They're, they're going to help you because 10 years down the road, they might be working for you or you might be working for them, or you might have an opportunity to work for them. And they came across you 10 years ago and you were not a nice person. So why would they want to hire you? Our circle is so small in the medical field that, I mean, everybody's going to run into each other eventually. You know what I mean? It really is an awesome thing when reps can work together to help Ultimately, yeah. the patient, which is where it all funnels down to. And it's just a shame that it doesn't happen as often as it should, right? Right. And I, I agree. But I feel like sometimes commissions or money gets in the way and people get territorial. And I get it. It's our job. It's our livelihood. But if we can come together, that one mindset, hey, this is for the patient. Like, Listen, sometimes there's holes in our bags, right? And so then you can be able to uh, collaborate with another rep saying, hey, listen, I don't have this for my doctor, but I want to make sure that he has what he needs for the procedure. So, hey, would you want to be able to do this case? I'll line you up with him. Is there anything that you don't have that I have that I can help you? And then you can build that trust. And then you're going to be able to tell your surgeon, hey, listen, I've got a good person. Yeah, I trust this guy. He's going to be good to be able to help with this case. And then it's a symbiotic relationship. And we hope that that hole in your bag was not put there by your competitor, right? Exactly, right? 100%. Well, Mr. Gafaro, thank you so much for coming on the show. Appreciate your words of advice and wish you the greatest success in your endeavor, sir. Deep is such a great concept. And I love how you built it out because deep for the doctors, for the employees of the hospitals, for the employees of the company and for your peers. I honestly believe you win more with honey and not vinegar. And that's always been my saying from my dad. And if you're sweet, you're going to go a long way. And if you're not, you're going to be ghosted or you're going to be blacklisted very quickly. So I feel like if you can be able to be kind and be able to help those and keep your main focus, which is providing for the patient and the surgeon to do a good case, I think you'll be able to do good things. Good things indeed, sir. Thank you so much. Appreciate having you. Thank you so much. Appreciate that. Well, thank you, Johnny Cafaro, for coming on the show. Isn't Johnny like the perfect 
prefix name for a stage name? Johnny Podcaster. Johnny Biologic. Well, how about Johnny Storyteller? Here's one for you. A California joint surgeon was running a couple hours late to a dinner where he was meeting his father, who's a nuclear physicist. His father asked him, hey, why are you so late? Surgeon tells him about this revision he was just in and the issue he was having with removing an ingrown acetabular cup. Father thinks for a couple minutes and then the remainder of dinner spent that time writing out a design for an extraction device on a napkin. It's always a napkin, isn't it? So what started on that napkin is now actually something you can add to your bag. Of course, I'm talking about the Brassler EZX acetabular extraction system. I spent a lot of time at AUKUS, probably too much time. I know at some point they were like, Kevin, will you please get out of our booth? But I just kept watching these demos over and over going, now, how does that thing work again? It's just awesome. For years, I sold what was arguably the industry standard for these explants, but this device is a whole nother level. Here is the flow. Simply take out the plastic liner that's in there, get the screws out. If it's metal on metal or dual mobility, then you're already ready to go. You're going to fill that space with the Brassler liner, and now comes the magic. Hook your reamer up to that rotating blade. I watched it over and over again studied it. How does it work? I don't know. I'm convinced there's some Keebler elves in there with tiny mallets and tiny chisels. And in the time that it takes to say, listen and subscribe to Device Nation, the shell is out and clean. So many pictures on LinkedIn showing people's success stories. This is one of those devices that's just a no-brainer. So check it out at BrasslerUSAMedical.com. I will put a link in the show notes. And if you say, hey, that's something I want in my bag before the competitor across town snatches it up, you're going to reach out to a good friend of Device Nation, Tom Brown, Global Sales Development over at Brassler. No, we're not related. Tom Brown at BrasslerUSA.com. Give him a shout. Tell him Device Nation sent you. You'll be glad you did. So there you have it, deep and wide. Well, our next guest has made a career not out of taking things out, but rather putting things back in through regenerative medicine and biologics. Of course, we're talking about LinkedIn Luminary, Dr. Don Buford. Thank you so much for coming on the show, sir. Thank you very much. I'm pleased to be here. I appreciate the invitation. I'm so thankful to have you on Device Nation to share your story with us. I've been following your posts on LinkedIn for some time, and the more I found out about you, the more I knew I have got to talk to this guy. Uh, <laughs> so many things I look forward to talking to you about. Baseball, your amazing family, regenerative medicine, the Buford Complex. But first, <laughs> let's go back to Palo Alto, California in 1983. What puts you on the path uh, to medicine? To really explain how I ended up at Stanford in the pre-med program, we have to go back maybe a year ahead of that, which was my senior year in high school. Um, I grew up in, in the San Fernando Valley, just outside of Los Angeles, and went to a small private high school called Harvard High School, now called Harvard Westlake. In my junior year, I had taken enough credits and such through AP coursework to, to have a little more flexibility my senior year. And one of the brilliant things that that private school did was they they recognized the wealth of talent amongst the the parents of the students. And again, this was in LA. So so most of my friends' parents were in the movie business or the music business. And there were a bunch of professionals in you know medicine and law and what have you. But they they got parents to agree to sign up on a list to sponsor a senior student who was an otherwise good standing to to sponsor that student to kind of have a kind of like a a day away from campus 
to see what that profession or to see what that job was like. It was called, uh, you know, senior projects, basically. You know, a lot of my friends saw that and took the opportunity to go work on the back lots of movies and in the music business. And I saw a couple names on the list that interested me. And, and one was a sports medicine doctor who agreed to have a senior come over and work on projects in his sports medicine practice. And so this is 1982. And so that doctor was Dr. Steven Schneider. And his practice was the Southern California Orthopedic Institute in Van Nuys, California. The way that uh, he became involved was because one of his partners had kids at the same school. Um, Dr. Jim Fox had kids at the same school. And so their group was listed. And I presented a project idea to, to Dr. Schneider. And he agreed to have me um, basically spend afternoons um, as his shadow. Um, as a, you know, as a 17 year old and, and just kind of watch what he did as a sports medicine doc. And this was even before he was really a niece, a, a shoulder specialist at that time. And my project way back then was creating a sound slide presentation for the parents of these uh, student athletes that had injuries to the shoulder and elbow. And I'll tell you, Kevin, this is old enough that these sound slide presentations, you know, it wasn't PowerPoint. These are the old carousels with the slides where right. you'd send out your slide deck and get it back and have to organize them in the round carousels and then sync the audio. So this is, I'm, I'm that old. And um, that turned into a six month project and, and, and a lifelong friendship. Um, and I ended up going up to Stanford to kind of chase a, an athletic and academic dream, both baseball and, and pre-med. But from that from that initial exposure, I knew that not only did I want to be a doctor, but I was even more specific than that. I, I knew at that point that I wanted to do what, what Steve did. I wanted to be an orthopedic surgeon. And so that's really where it started was back um, even before I was 18. Um, I kind of knew where I wanted to end up. Well, you also had a side hustle going on during that time yeah. frame, and that was uh, baseball. Tell me about that. Yeah, I've always had two dreams. You know, one was to 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 be a sports medicine doc, and the other was to play baseball in the big leagues. And I, I grew up, as you know, in a baseball house. My father played for ten years in the big leagues and four years in Japan. And my youngest brother, who's four years younger than me, played eight years in the big leagues. And um, I have another brother who played through high school but didn't play beyond that. So I was I was kind of, um, you know, next up as the oldest son to to try and follow in my dad's footsteps. And that was just something I grew up around. And, you know, it happens to a lot of, you know, kids who have parents that are in a particular sport. You grow up around it and it's just all you know. You grow to love the sport. And I was in that boat for sure. Went up to Stanford hoping to to play baseball in college and beyond. And so have very fond memories of that. I got in a situation in college, like a lot of athletes, where I was a freshman playing behind a uh, essentially a junior. And I'm sorry, a freshman playing behind a sophomore who was already basically All-American. So I wasn't going to get but one year, if I was lucky, um, to start on the varsity team. And I still had aspirations to play. And so after two years at Stanford, I went to my parents and said, hey, look, you know, I'm loving the school. The school's amazing and still feel that to this day. But but I really have this first dream of wanting to play ball. And I'd like to transfer back home um, and try and play for one of the schools, you know, USC and UCLA or, or hometown schools and transferred back to USC with my parents permission, which in hindsight, I can't imagine my son coming to me and saying, hey, look, I'm leaving Stanford. I'm going to transfer back to <laughs> right. you know, back, back home. But they trusted me. I had always been a good kid and not in too much trouble and was still going to be pre-med at either school. So they said, OK. And then the other trick was, you know, when you transfer within conference in a, in a D1 sport at the varsity level, you usually have to sit out a year. Back then, I was able to get both athletic directors to sign off and to get that kind of redshirt kind of year waived. 
So I was eligible right away and started playing right away when I transferred to USC. So, you know, I'm forever grateful to the athletic directors and coach Mark Marcos, who was at Stanford at the time, and coach Rod Dato, who was the legendary coach at USC at the time, to all agree to let me do that. And so you're right. That was that was the other the other dream I chased as long as I could. After college, I played four years of pro ball for the Orioles organization and and even did a little bit of medical school in the offseason, if you can believe that. <laughs> but uh, finally got to a point where I had to make a decision. And, and you know, here we are. <laughs> I got to go back and ask you one question about it. Seventy seven <laughs> stolen bases in one season. That's just amazing. And I've always wondered about the stolen base. Is it just a function of speed or is there some other things in play there to help you pick that thing off? Well, there, there's, there's definitely some technical things. Speed, obviously speed, um, speed matters, obviously, but there's some technical things where, you know, you have two guys that are the same speed and one might be a better base stealer or base runner. Yeah, the 77 bases, the time I did that in double A, I believe, the, the part that I was most proud of was I was only thrown out seven times. So I was like 77 out of 84. Wow. Which is like an unheard of percentage where basically if I took off to steal, people were like, well, there's no sense even throwing the ball down. In fact, what they started to do is I would I would go to steal third base and they would throw to second base and throw the guy out who was trying to double steal behind me, <laughs> which cost me a stolen base. Right. <laughs> But, um, but, you know, probably a third of those stolen bases were third base. And if, if that's one of those situations where, you know, it gets relatively technical and picking up on tips from the pitcher. And, you know, that was what I was good at. I was good at running the bases and, and playing reasonable defense. And, you know, somebody you'd either put at the very top of the lineup or at the very bottom of the lineup with somebody you could count on to hopefully to uh, make something happen on the base pass. So you went to Southern California, did your sports medicine fellowship, and here we are 22 years later, Sports Medicine Clinic of North Texas. Uh, tell me about your practice these days. What are you doing? What are you excited about? I love the way my practice has developed because it's it's always been in line with how I feel in my heart as far as taking care of people, which is, you know, the least invasive, easiest you know, if need be cheapest way to get somebody back doing what they want to do. And so I started as a sports medicine doc because I love sports and people would come to see me because they weren't able to play or participate or be as active as they wanted to be. And coming out of working with Dr. Schneider, I was primarily a shoulder specialist, maybe the first 10 years of my practice, where I did probably 80% shoulder surgery and 20% knee, picked up on the orthobiologics bug around 2009 or 2010. And as that field has continued to develop, more and more of my practice has shifted towards these more minimally invasive, often office-based procedures where we can either minimize the need for surgery or, or hasten the recovery you know, from surgery or without surgery. And, um, and as a result, now my practice has shifted to where it's probably 50% office-based you know, procedures like platelet-rich plasma or bone marrow concentrate. And I still do 50% surgery for those situations where that's really the best answer. But my practice has really shifted the last decade or so to be more office-based. I'm doing fewer surgeries just because there's so many more people that don't need surgery but still have a problem that we can help them with. So tell me about the Texas Orthobiologics Institute. Is that what just naturally evolved out of your, your interest in this part of medicine? It did. It did. I felt the need to basically almost rebrand the practice right? because I wanted people to recognize that, you know, we're still a great place, in my opinion, to to come to for an, a, a surgical evaluation. 
But the one thing that I think that we can offer that many places can't is we can also give them all of the orthobiologic options that have solid evidence behind them. And it works the other way, too. If somebody's interested in orthobiologics, we can give them that evaluation and also say, hey, look, this may be a situation where surgery really does have a significantly better outcome. So um, I like the idea of the one-stop shopping for patients and and rebranding as Texas Orthobiologics with kind of the moniker that we do orthobiologics and orthopedic surgery seemed to capture the shift in my practice. Well, that's a great segue as we're talking about branding. Uh, your name is synonymous to me with regenerative medicine. Could you define for the audience exactly what that is? It's interesting because I, I, I honestly don't really like the term regenerative medicine um, unless it truly is referring to something that we can show is regenerating. So, and there are some situations like that, but for many things that we do in, in regenerative medicine, we're trying to use, at least for orthobiologics, we're trying to use kind of autologous or, or the patient's own reparative and healing systems to, to affect a repair. And a, a situation where somebody has an injury and the normal recovery process has stalled or hasn't really proceeded in a way that allows somebody to get back to the same level of participation or performance that they're used to. And so regenerative medicine becomes kind of a broad term where we're trying to do something um, often non-surgical and, and usually based on something. It doesn't have to be autologous. Sometimes it can be from other sources, but using something that st stimulates or promotes a healing response. And now if we can show that something is truly regenerating, fantastic. And there's, there's some areas in the body where we can show that, but very often um, it also gets put into, or that term gets used in a situation where somebody may have kind of a chronic degenerative condition like arthritis and their problem is pain and their problem is, you know, loss of cartilage. And in that situation, the term regenerative medicine, um, may not be as appropriate because they're not really turning back the clock on an x-ray or on a, on a, on a knee that has global arthritis, but we're treating their pain and getting them back to function nonetheless. It's almost more of a palliative option, you know, for pain control and the corresponding functional improvement that people get, but not so much regenerative. So, you know, it's a double-edged sword to use the term, but it's it's a term that's widely used in the media, and it's a term that I have absolutely go with. I just make sure that in, in the course of our discussions with people, we make sure that their goals in terms of regeneration match what I can promise them in terms of science and clinical outcome. What is PRP to the uninitiated and what is BMAC? Just a quick overview. Sure. So PRP refers to platelet-rich plasma. Platelets are things that are circulating in our blood and they have basically little vesicles. Think of them as little water balloons filled full of proteins and things that affect change in the body. And when we use um, our own blood and we centrifuge or concentrate it, we are removing the red blood cells and we're keeping the part of our blood that has the platelets and their associated uh, growth factors and other proteins with them. So that's why we get the term platelet-rich plasma because we're having to concentrate the blood to create a, a, an injection that has a much higher platelet count than the normal platelet count. So um, the, other, the other big thing that we measure in platelet-rich plasma is the white blood cell count. So it gets a little more specific, but you can have different flavors of PRP, if you will. You can have leukocyte-rich with a lot of white blood cells, or you can have leukocyte-poor with very few white blood cells. But the bottom line is what we're all looking for in that situation when we're using PRP is to enhance our normal 
um, platelet count and then to target that um, injection in a place that needs it. BMAC stands for bone marrow aspirate concentrate. And the, the big difference between platelet-rich plasma, remember PRP comes from blood, so it's just a typical blood draw. BMAC comes from a bone marrow aspiration. And so the most common place where we get bone marrow, um, at least in orthopedics, would be from the posterior iliac crest. Um, that's a procedure that we can do in the office under local anesthesia. It's not the same as a bone marrow aspiration that some patients may think of when they think about bone marrow transplant. Those are much different, much more invasive, much more involved procedures. So BMAC is a procedure that can be office-based, doesn't need general anesthesia, doesn't need a trip to the hospital. Um, and the reason why we use BMAC or have BMAC is because our bone marrow is different than our blood. And there are different concentrations of proteins in our bone marrow. And in some cases, different um, things altogether that we don't have in our blood that have different biological effects. And so I'll give you one example. There's, there's a, a, a protein called, uh, we'll call it IRAP for short, I-R-A-P. And that tends to be 10 to 20 times more concentrated in bone marrow or in BMAC compared to PRP. And that could be clinically important because IRAP is one of the most or one of the strongest anti-inflammatory proteins that we know about in our human biology. So, you know, if somebody's underlying problem is, is chronic inflammation, using BMAC may be a great choice compared to PRP because the BMAC has a much higher anti-inflammatory effect based on this higher concentration of IRAP. So that's why we have these two different orthobiologics and there's different situations where we may use them. And, and believe me, the research is still ongoing about the when and the where. But, uh, but those are the two basic differences. So, Dr. Buford, what injuries and conditions do you think are best served by orthobiologics, something that in your hands ha have just got the patient across the finish line almost every time? I'm going to give you two ways to answer that, <laughs> that, I answer, that I answer that question. Sure. One, in terms of just the clinical evidence, there are certain areas that far and above others have solid clinical evidence. And most of the orthobiologic studies where I can say that, the orthobiologic is platelet-rich plasma. And so we can talk about the elbow. So for example, tennis elbow, uh, maybe to a lesser extent golfer's elbow, but for sure tennis elbow has been studied um, by clinicians across the world, different patient populations. And PRP has been studied um, in tennis elbow and has been shown to be effective um, and to be statistically significantly more effective than just doing dry needling or injecting steroid or, or some of the other treatments that people would otherwise have. So I think tennis elbow is one place where the research goes back now eight, nine years, back to Alan Mishra's early work. Another area now that's very relevant because there's so many people that have knee pain is in knee arthritis. There are now, at last count, at least, at least 32 level one studies, meaning, you know, double-blinded, randomized, prospective studies that show that PRP is a better injection compared to uh, hyaluronic acid and compared to placebo. And by better, I mean, it gives longer pain relief and more effective pain relief huh. than, steroid, than steroid or hyaluronic acid. And so that amount of level one studies, again, from researchers all over the planet is staggering. There's not many things in orthopedics where we have that many level one studies showing that one treatment's that much better than another. Like most things in science, when it's reproducible, you know, all over the globe by many different researchers and many different 
patient populations, you start to think that this is this is a real thing. It's part of human biology. So the pain relief that people get with PRP and knee arthritis is another thing that I think is kind of a slam dunk. There's been a lot of work in, in the lumbar spine. Patients that have chronic low back pain are difficult to diagnose and difficult to treat. And the, the traditional answer is a steroid injection. And platelet-rich plasma has been shown to, to give at least the same pain relief, if not better. And by better, I mean lasting longer without any of the potential side effects of a steroid injection. So that would be another area. And like knee arthritis, there's so many patients we see that have chronic low back pain that are just looking for a solution that's non-narcotic and non-invasive and non-surgical. And, you know, now we're developing these things that we have options for them, whether it's like laser or, or platelet-rich plasma. So those are the big ones. The other answer I give patients when they ask that though, Kevin, is is look, any place or any time a doctor tells you you need a steroid injection, at least in my opinion, that is a place where we could use orthobiologics. Huh. It may not have as much science as the elbow, knee, you know, hip or low back or a shoulder for that matter. But any place a doctor would think about putting steroid injection because of its anti-inflammatory capabilities is certainly a place we could, we could at least postulate using an orthobiologic like PRP. What are your thoughts on PRP for rotator cuff repair? Yeah, the data is a little bit mixed. I did one of the early studies that showed that it didn't matter. And, and frankly, it led me to not use PRP for three or four years. This is back in 2010, 2011. But, you know, that was back before we even realized that all PRP is not the same. <laughs> right. And that the, the formula matters, the concentration or the dosage likely matters, the, the leukocyte count or the white blood cell count matters. And so as you pay more attention to that, I think the researchers that are currently publishing are seeing better results. The godfather of, of orthobiologics for rotator cuff would be Philippe Hernigal, who published a kind of a landmark study out of France that showed that if you use bone marrow aspirate concentrate, during a rotator cuff repair, you can you can get up to upwards of 100% healing at six months, and that lasts out to about 10 years with still 82% of those tendons still intact. So mm. there's clearly a role for orthobiologics. For people that don't have actual rotator cuff tears or full thickness, then I think that orthobiologics can buy people a lot of time and return a lot of people back to function. And I, I just completed one of the studies that documented that outcome um, using BMAC. And what that study showed is that even two years after a single injection in the office, patients with partial thickness tears were still back at the same functional level, still had pain that was 70-80% better than before the injection. So I think it's a great option. I think if somebody has a traumatic tear and it's a full thickness tear, we are still looking towards surgical repair. I think that's still the, the smart thing to do for long-term outcome. But if somebody has a chronic degenerative tear or has a partial tear that's stable, then orthobiologics is a game changer because I think those are patients who used to put steroid injections into and probably turn some of those into tears. It needed surgery. One word I'm hearing a lot in orthobiologic circles lately is adipose. Uh, where does that play into this discussion? So adipose is interesting. It's got less clinical research data, although it's getting harder to say that. There, there's people all across the planet that are studying adipose diligently. But adipose has... Uh, unbalanced, less research data than, than PRP or bone marrow concentrate. And what we're discovering, though, is that it is clinically useful as an orthobiologic. It's important to remember that when we talk about stem cells, those are truly procedures where somebody gets a stem cell aspiration, or whether it's from fat or bone marrow, and then is able to culture those stem cells to create an injection that truly is kind of a pure stem cell injection. And at least in the United States, that's not really what we're doing. With Adipose, the largest company is a company called Lipogems. And with their technique, you're basically uh, harvesting adipose tissue and then using kind of mechanical means to make 
the adipose tissue into smaller blocks of tissue, if, that, if you will. And that basically um, is then injected wherever it needs to go. It's used a lot. I think its use is growing in the United States. And as a result, the clinical data coming out of some centers is, is growing also. There's been publications over the last year comparing it to bone marrow concentrate showing equivalent outcomes for some indications. And so I think adipose is, is a viable option in terms of clinical outcomes. And so now you have to look at the other factors in terms of cost, invasiveness, you know, some of the other things that, that figure into making a clinical recommendation for a particular patient. How do people connect with you at the Institute? Just see what you've got going on and look at the procedures that are offered over there. We do a lot of telemedicine. So if somebody's interested in a consult as a patient, then they can contact us through the website, which is the OrthoBioTexas website. If you Google Google or somebody Google Texas Orthobiologics, our website would be one of the first one or two that pops up probably. Listed on that website are direct phone numbers to contact myself even or my staff. And if somebody wants to come hang out as a clinician and spend time in the practice, we do that also. Almost kind of like a mini fellowship, depending on how much time someone has, they can contact us through the same mechanisms just through our, our, our practice in Dallas. That is an awesome opportunity, doctor. You've been such a watchman on the wall, so to speak, on LinkedIn and calling out the misbranders, the stem cells for MS, injectable amniotic fluid, Wharton's jelly. So here's my question for you. If there is a Q code, is it a legitimate application of a product? No, the uh, and that's something I appreciate the question. Because <laughs> the more we make this obvious and the more we clarify this, not only for doctors and patients, but even for salespeople who, who often just believe, you know, something they're handed on a piece of paper. Um, I, I think the more we can move this field forward, a Q code is a code that's granted basically through CMS or through Medicare to allow a company to bill for a particular product. What patients need to understand, and anyone in the business that doesn't, is that the Q code has nothing to do with the FDA. The FDA doesn't assign Q codes. And so you've got one institution, that being the FDA, that is responsible for, for regulating drugs and approving drugs. You have another institution that's responsible for just purely giving out a Q code. So when it's time to bill, you have the appropriate code to bill. And those two institutions are two big federal institutions that don't always talk together. If a company, and I won't use names, but if a company were to just go straight to Medicare and say, hey, look, we've got this product, we've already approved it with the FDA, you know, we just need a Q code, Medicare is not necessarily going to call the FDA and check. They're going to grant the Q code. And that's basically what happened. And so now you've got a Q code. And again, I'm not going to name names, but let's just say a company, now that they have a Q code for their product, now creates this whole marketing plan around it saying, hey, we've got a Medicare Q code. Medicare will pay you. And the numbers are crazy, Kevin, as you know. We'll pay you $2,000 per one cc injection of this amniotic product. And they'll tell the doctors, you know, you draw one, uh, one cc for patients that are, or people listening that don't understand. One cc is like a tuberculin syringe. It's an incredibly small amount. Our typical PRP injections are six times that, for example. So here you have a one cc injection that uh, the government's being billed, you know, three or $4,000 for and probably paying $2,000 for and so there's a financial incentive there, unfortunately, that some people respond to. And as it turns out, because the FDA wasn't aware of it, it wasn't until the FDA was made aware that they said, hey, yeah, this is not something that we've approved. This drug shouldn't even be used in humans yet, which is what the FDA has subsequently said. And one of the problems that those clinics that did this are now facing is that Medicare can come back to them and say, hey, look, we paid you incorrectly. And we want this money back. And if they deem it was intentional, they can ask for penalties also. There's been some estimates I've seen recently that this may be in the hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars. It may be the biggest clawback by Medicare so far in history. 
just because it was such a high dollar amount. If you inject two knees with two CCs, you know, that's $10,000, give or take, per person. And in these clinics are doing advertising, they may be doing that to 10 people a day, you know? So the numbers become staggering. So I, I really think that there's going to be more to the story. I think the word has been put out there by a lot of clinicians, myself included, that having a Q code in no way means that a drug is approved by the FDA. And right. that's really the bottom line. And probably every rep listening that ever sold compounded pain cream yeah. just shuddered at the word clawback. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. There's been several pain cream cases in the Dallas area that, that are always big news. You know, you find out somebody's paying $2,200 for however many grams of pain cream. And it's cliche, but it's true. You know, everything you needed to know, you probably learned in kindergarten. <laughs> and, and if it sounds too good to be true, it probably is. <laughs> right. <laughs> Well, doctor, this thing doesn't run on air. So how can a surgeon integrate orthobiologics into their practice in a way that's revenue positive? That's really been the the, the, the focus of a lot of my training and teaching over the past year or two, which is when you look at the barriers to entry for the average clinician, whether it's a surgeon or not, if they didn't come into practice or into a practice already set up to do orthobiologics, it can be pretty daunting because there's really a couple things you need to understand as a clinician. One is this is a cash pay procedure, in my opinion, at this point. It's, it's not really covered by any significant commercial insurance companies, um, certainly not covered by Medicare, regardless of Q code. And as a result, the clinician's practice and, and often the clinician himself or herself needs to be ready to have a talk about pricing. There's no days in medical school where you talk about those types of financial discussions. And so it's uncomfortable for a lot of people. And you need to figure out how do you price your how do you price your procedure? What's the competition doing? You know, what factors go into a fair price? Those are all things that you need a good office manager or you need to spend some time sorting that out. But that discussion with patients is something that's not it's not intuitive. And so that's one thing that needs to happen. The other thing that needs to happen is you need some way to deliver these orthobiologics accurately. If a clinician is not up to speed on using ultrasound, which is I think is mandatory in my opinion. And then, you know, the secondary imaging that's used most commonly would be fluoroscopy. But if somebody needs to see soft tissue, they have to use ultrasound. Again, it's gotten better over the, gosh, we started our course in 2008. It's gotten better in 13, 14 years, but there's still not an adequate amount of musculoskeletal ultrasound training in musculoskeletal residencies and fellowships, in my opinion. So that means that a doctor that's already in practice has to go back and do a little bit of extra kind of extracurricular postgraduate work at courses and, you know, or, 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 or shadowing somebody like in my office, for example, or some of the other places that do that. And so those are two big barriers to entry. You know, fortunately, there, there's, there's more cost-effective options now for the PRP kits and the bone marrow concentrate kits. So cost has become more reasonable there. But but really, it's a practice-based issue where the clinician has to really solve those two problems or have a good plan for those two issues before they start offering this to the public. As you hear more and more about evidence-based medicine, I know that you're involved in a biologic association addressing that very topic. Before we close the door on the biologics discussion, I just wanted to ask you about your work there. Sure. The biologic association is a, a well, we just had our second annual meeting. So they're, they're basically in their third year. And this is a collaboration of orthopedic surgery groups, uh, along with uh, physical medicine groups and, and non-surgical orthopedists, where everyone is now recognizing that if we're going to truly have evidence-based um, orthobiologics, we all need to work together. It's too hard for any one group 
or even any one society to accumulate data fast enough where this is going to be useful. And so the Biologic Association was really the the brainchild of Dr. Jason Dragu and Bert Mandelbaum and some other orthopedic surgeons. What they've done is created a collaborative effort amongst nine separate orthopedic societies, some surgical, some not, where the goal is to collect data in a biologic repository, uh, which is where my involvement comes in, in terms of consulting and things like that. And then also to share outcomes and, and basically to you know, this field is changing so rapidly, it would be a shame to find out eight months from now something that has just been um, shown to be very effective. And so it's just a way to communicate, a way to keep the lines of communication open amongst all orthopedic clinicians that are interested in orthobiologics. And so the meetings have been fantastic. The lectures are truly cutting edge where every person at the podium presents something that's useful clinically and is thought-provoking. And in terms of, of the data collection um, because I've been doing that longer than most in that association, I've tried to be helpful to uh, help people avoid pitfalls and not make all the mistakes that, that I've made. Because I've, you know, like anything else, if you do it long enough and started early, you probably made all the mistakes. I, I know where all the problems sure. are. So I'm trying to help um, speed that process for us. You brought up ultrasound, and I'm glad you did. You authored a section of Matson and Rockwell's textbook, The Shoulder, detailing ultrasound evaluation of the shoulder. I've been hearing a lot about it lately. Two questions. How does it work, and what's all the buzz about? It's interesting. I was first exposed, I'll give you the whole background, I was first exposed to ultrasound when I was invited to do some live surgery overseas and they didn't have access to, to MRI scans. And so the only imaging I had before operating on a couple people over there was ultrasound. And so after that meeting, I came back and kind of being naturally curious, I, I started calling some ultrasound companies and, and Sonosite was one of the early ones back then and said, hey, look, you know, I'm a U.S. surgeon. I realize there's not a lot of ultrasound, but um, uh, as an orthopedic surgeon, I would love to, to, to get some training. Where can I go? And at that point, there were no surgeon-led training courses. There weren't really any courses at any of the annual orthopedic meetings, sports medicine or otherwise. And they put me in touch with a like-minded shoulder surgeon at a meeting in San Diego. And, and we started collaborating. And a year later, we actually started our own training course. We were basically just one year ahead of everybody else. By both of us being shoulder surgeons, our volumes were pretty large. And what you discover when you get exposed to it is you know, the first thought is, you know, the light goes off. Like, why haven't I been shown this before? And, and then you realize that there's really no other way to see soft tissues in the human body in a dynamic fashion, uh, not not in clinical practice anyway. So, you know, if I want to see that tennis elbow problem or if I want to see that torn medial collateral ligament or the torn Achilles, I have to use ultrasound. And in the United States, traditionally, the people that have you know, we're very good at it at the time that we were just being exposed to it as surgeons. We're all in the radiology department. So there's excellent radiologists that are MSK sonographers, but there was just a complete lack of training in the surgical subspecialty. So so we started the course and, and, and now that we've had the course for a long time and had a bunch of seminars, there's been other courses and a real push towards education. And I don't know anybody that's ever seen ultrasound that thought that it wasn't the greatest imaging modality of all in their hands. I was shocked when I read this quote by diagnostic radiologist Dr. Forney. He said, when structures are not very deep uh -huh. or superficial, ultrasound can show images with higher resolution and detail than MRI. That's very true. I see it a lot around the shoulder, but but he's 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 exactly right. And it raises it raises another dilemma for the clinician, Kevin, which is an interesting thing, and it's something we discuss in these meetings of seminars, which is now that you have a modality that magnifies things even more than MRI scan, now you have to decide how important is that thing that I'm seeing. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> now you've got now you've got five or six pixels on the screen that don't look right. And 
have to decide, gosh, is that clinically important or not? So that's part of the trick and part of the reason why we need training. But as an imaging modality, it is it is incredibly sensitive, especially with all the currently available MSK machines that are out there. They're all very sensitive. So any advice to surgeons listening that do not have this in their practice armamentarium right now? How do they learn more about it? And what's it look like integrating it into their practice? What's what's the next couple steps for them? You know, if someone's going to meetings, it's been a little bit hard, obviously, the last year and a half with the pandemic. But, but as someone starts going to meetings at every orthopedic meeting nowadays, it's not too hard to find someone that will will you know spend some time and talk to you about it. In terms of getting training, there's now, fortunately, there's various different courses that are available. I'm, I'm obviously partial to ours because I think it's very practical. I'm not I'm not writing papers on ultrasound details. I'm more writing clinical papers, and so most of our ultrasound training is geared more towards. Here's the top 10 things you need to know around the knee. Here's the top 10 things around the shoulder. You know, just trying to teach people the most common things as opposed to the minutia. So finding a good course, I think, is critical. And then, like most other things, just practice, practice, practice. So where do surgeons link up to about a course? I I, I saw something out there that you were involved in. Uh, what do they click on? So there's a couple things. Most of the annual meetings will have some ultrasound training as part of it. Mm-hmm. That will give someone a good kind of broad exposure. If somebody really wants to go to a course where they're going to learn enough to take it back and start using it right away in practice, then I would recommend our course or something like our course. Our course is at orthosono.com. And it's a two and a half day course that we have twice a year. So we're never too far away from having a course. It keeps us busy. Uh, Sure. But but we, we sell out every course at about 75 docs or, or, you know, we'll see a fair number of physicians assistants and other clinicians as well. I think for somebody that's really going to commit, you need to spend probably a couple days at an ultrasound or MSK ultrasound dedicated course to learn not only the diagnostic potential, but also to learn how to use it to guide injections. Well, Dr. Buford, your practice is also being a sports medicine surgeon. What has you excited these days? I mean, what's your, what's your favorite procedure to do? And I'm old school. I still like a good, nice rotator cuff repair. <laughs> right. So, Oh, that's something that, you know, when you've done it long enough, it's like putting on your shoes in the morning. You don't think about it anymore. Sure. Um, so I still like that. I still do a fair number of anterior cruciate ligament reconstructions. Um, in terms of what's coming down the pike, I think integrating orthobiologics more and more into some of the surgical procedures will will uh, will help our patients. There hasn't been a whole lot of data showing which cases it makes sense to add and which cases it doesn't. But in the cases where there is data, we're certainly starting to do that now. But I think that ultimately there's going to be more and more consensus on uh, on where we can use orthobiologics, not just in the office, but also to help augment surgical procedures. Speaking of the shoulder, I read the other day about the Buford complex mm-hmm. in the shoulder, and it hit me. It's named after you. Uh, that's awesome. Tell us about it. That dates all the way back to the reason I went into orthopedic surgery in the first place. My, my time with Dr. Schneider at the Southern California Orthopedic Institute, that time in my senior year kind of turned into a kind of a standing invitation to to go by his office and his surgery center to watch surgery whenever I was in town. And all through college, I took advantage of that. Anytime I was in town, I would, I would try and swing by and say hello and kind of look over his shoulder in the OR. And at one of those visits, this is when they had just started, you know, I think there's only one suture anchor available back at that time. It was the MyTech G2 anchor. And he had seen a couple of patients that were referred to him post arthroscopic shoulder surgery for, for an unstable dislocating shoulder. And he had noted that these patients after manipulation, their anchors were torn loose. And it looked like something bad had just happened, but but when the patients woke up, they felt great. (laughs) 
And they were happy that that anchor and that suture was no longer holding things down. And so we looked at that and I, we looked at a couple other patients during arthroscopy that had this funny looking thing that nobody had really described arthroscopically. In, in true Dr. Schneider fashion, he, he gave that task to me and said, why don't you look it up and tell me what you see? And I went back, looked at a whole bunch of surgical video and came back and, and talked it over with him and his fellow and decided that it was most likely a normal variant because we couldn't correlate it to any pathology or any, any anything really at all. And when we wrote it up and published it, he he's responsible for naming all papers. And that's what he named it with his amazing dry sense of humor. And, you know, the name stuck. And now now it's in everything. It's in all the radiology textbooks and reports and such. And I'm forever grateful <laughs> to him for that. But that's how it started, just me being curious and and him having the patience that I don't know that I have. <laughs> if I had an 18-year-old kid in my OR asking me a bunch of questions. <laughs> that's awesome. Quite a distinction. I think the only complex that's been named after me is the inferiority complex. <laughs> <laughs> Not nearly as exciting. <laughs> you did a talk in Dubai on the throwing shoulder. I, I would love to hear your perspective just as a former professional baseball player and now sports medicine surgeon. How do you see those sports injuries now and, and bringing all that together for you? In, in terms of with orthobiologics, um, to tie that back, I think you know, I'm in a part of the country in, in Dallas where, like many parts of the country, where youth sports has really taken off. Early specialization has really taken off. For now, these kids are being told at 10 or 11 that they have to make the select team and if they do make the select team, we're talking, you know, 12 hours of practice a week and traveling and, and the injuries that some of these younger athletes are getting were unheard of 20 years ago. Right. Because back then, when I was that age, we were out riding the big wheels. We were in the cul-de-sac playing stickball. We were, you know, jumping rope, whatever, playing hoops. And there wasn't this single sport specialization that I think most people now recognize leads to an increased injury rate. And as a result, there's been an explosion in surgeries done in these younger student athletes that probably should not do if we can avoid it. And things like ulnar collateral ligament reconstruction, like the Tommy John surgery, we're getting younger patients with ACL tears. And what we're seeing in orthobiologics, which I think is really exciting, is, for example, with the ulnar collateral ligament at the elbow in our young throwing athletes, if they have a partial tear, we're seeing that very often we can get them back and this may be a place where regenerative medicine is an appropriate term. We're getting them back with a healed ligament without surgery. Wow. And so those are the sorts of things in our throwing athletes and in our sports-minded uh, patients that I think are really exciting. I think there's going to be more and more situations like that where it actually will be regenerative in a younger age patient where, where there's more of a chance for these treatments to truly be regenerative. Got to ask you about slap lesions. Are they over-treated or underappreciated? Great question. The, you know, when slaps, and so slap lesions, just a little background, that was also described by Dr. Schneider, my mentor. So I, I grew up kind of learning about those also. And early on, like a lot of things that are new, they were overdiagnosed and likely overtreated. I think that pendulum swung back now where people recognize that there's really only a couple types of slap lesions that we need to treat. It's even gone a step further probably in the last five to 10 years in terms of what the appropriate treatment is. And that, that tends to be um, age-based and activity-based, but it used to be that if somebody had a slap lesion, they were getting a slap repair. Now, if somebody has a slap lesion, they may get a biceps tenodesis and actually get a better result than if they had a slap repair, which gets a little bit technical, but it's a subtle shift in the thinking where sometimes the anatomic repair may lead to a worse outcome in a certain age patient. So I, I still think that uh, it's, it's certainly real pathology, certainly a source of dysfunction, but the treatment is, is, is 
has changed um, in terms of the surgery that might be best, especially in a throwing athlete, where, where if you just repair a slap lesion like we used to do, a lot of the throwers aren't getting back to the same level of performance. Well, let's step out of the OR for just a minute. Any advice to surgeons that are just coming out of their fellowship programs now and uh, planting a flag in their local communities? Uh, anything you would tell them that, that you wish you would have known at the beginning or just tips, tricks on how to build their practice now? The best advice I can give to the younger clinicians coming out is is just to keep an open mind. There's so much information now. You know, they used to talk about information doubling every so often. Now, whatever that number used to be, it's doubled past that even. So it's really hard to know everything about everything. A lot of times for the younger clinicians, I tell them, you know, find four or five things that you love to do and get really good at those and keep your ear to the ground for the other things. But if they really want to establish themselves in a community, um, depending on where they are, it might be better to be known as the doc for or at least one of the referral sources for a few issues and not every issue. Right. That's that's probably the best advice I would give to someone just coming out. Any advice to the reps that are listening? I mean, in your mind, what makes a good rep to support your efforts? That's a great question, too. Um, you know, for me, the, the best reps I've had over the years, and I've had lots of really good reps, the, the best ones are intuitive in terms of they, they anticipate what could be needed in a case. And it's hard if you're with a new doc, you don't have a way to know that. But if you've been with the doc for a while and you pay attention during surgery instead of just kind of shooting the breeze, you start to learn someone's thought process. And if you aren't able to pick it up after three or four of the same surgeries, I think it's worth asking a question like, hey, why are you doing that? Right. You know, tell me your thought process there. And of course, it takes the right surgeon too to be able to, to, to have that conversation. But for me, the best reps I've had know how I think, know the things that I might need. And maybe most importantly, if they don't know, they're not afraid to ask. And, you know, some of that goes back to, to military thinking, which is you, you never just bring one of anything. <laughs> sure. You bring a couple and and um, and make sure there's no other options that might be needed. Great advice. What do you like to do when you're not in the OR? It gets harder to play baseball when you hit, I'm 55 now, when you hit 55. <laughs> it's hard to get hard to get 18, 55-year-olds together on a field. Uh, for three hours, but um, but I'm still playing a lot of tennis in the mornings because it's something I can do, you know, before clinic starts or before surgery and doesn't disrupt family life too much. We do a lot of uh, dinners and seeing movies as far as getting out of the house. Yeah. But in staying active, it's it's swimming or tennis at this point. What's your favorite movie? I'm asking for help, Kevin. Hold on. <laughs> <laughs> hey, this isn't Cash Cab. <laughs> yeah, I'll tell you what. We're going to see Shang Shang Chi tonight. You know the new Marvel movie with the uh, right. Yeah, so this that may be the answer after tonight. So we just saw, um, you know, they had that baseball game on the Field of Dreams field. Yeah. And uh, my dad was a consultant on that movie, so it was really cool to see the baseball game there because I've never been there. But that brought back the whole conversation about Fields of Dreams. But anyway, um, you know, I, I'll see anything. My, my family is not quite as, as – doesn't have as quite a broad-based interest as I do. But um, I just appreciate going somewhere and relaxing and escaping for, you know, the couple hours. That had to have been cool as a young lad being at the World Series, seeing your dad play. Yeah. Only regret I have, it's not even really a regret because it's, it's – my parents' fault, but I was young. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I was born in 66, and dad's last year in the States was 72. So those three years where they were in the World Series three years in a row were 69, 70, and 71. 
So I was three, four, and five. And oh. <laughs> uh, I mean, so, but the crazy thing, though, the crazy thing, though, Kevin, is I remember the '70 World Series when they played the Big Red Machine. They played Pete Rose and Johnny Bench and all those guys. Right. I remember that series, even though I was only four. And you've got pictures of of me on the on the baseball field at the old Memorial Stadium in Baltimore um, with one of my brothers. Damon wasn't born. And um, I remember those pictures. They used to have father and son baseball games, um, like before the main game. And uh, I remember being on the field and thinking that I was, you know, the next coming of, you know, Babe Ruth hitting home runs. Oh, yeah. Which is something that probably cost me <laughs> later in life, thinking <laughs> I could hit home runs. But, um, but yeah, those are some fantastic memories. And then when he played four years in Japan after being in the States, I remember that a lot more because I was you know, from six to 10. I remember going on road trips with him and. I used to chart all the baseball games back when that was a thing. <laughs> so I had a scorebook and would chart all the games, and it was an easy way to learn math back then. <laughs> oh, my gosh. I was looking at the uh, stats on you and your dad, and it's just amazing the metrics out there on baseball players now. It's just totally overwhelming. It is. It truly is. I mean, if you've got a good agent, they can come up with a way to make you the top two or three. <laughs> <laughs> A lot of that, remember, it started with Billy Ball and, and, and some of that. But, um, you know, you still can't measure heart. <laughs> yeah, that's true. And I was involved in, in pro ball um, in 91. I was on a group of professional or invited to be part of a, a group of professional players that went to the Soviet Union because they had decided they wanted to have an Olympic baseball team. And baseball had just become a sport. Their approach to having a good baseball team was very similar to what they did to have a good hockey team. They went to the best country in the world and said, help us. And so with hockey, they went to the Canadians back then. And then, of course, the Russian hockey team, you know, became amazing pretty quickly. With baseball, they went to the United States and said, send us a bunch of pro athletes over here for three weeks. And we'll put them together with our Olympic athletes that are in, like, the track and field sports. And we'll give you some javelin throwers because they kind of throw like a baseball pitcher. And so I spent three weeks over there with a bunch of other pro guys, like double A or above, and tried to teach them baseball. And their questions are always, are all second baseman your size? You know, they, they basically wanted to crunch this into a formula. Right. But they could punch this into a formula and see, like, at six years old, if the kid is this height and weight, he's going to potentially be a great middle infielder. <laughs> and so we helped them with that a little bit. The one thing those formulas don't capture is heart. And baseball is one of the few sports where height and weight, you know, it's not like football or, or basketball. Um, you, have, you have all different heights and weights and and desire probably has as much to do with it as anything in baseball compared to some of the other sports where, you know, I don't care how great you are. If you're only 5'2", unless you're Muggsy Bogues or one of those, you're not going to be a basketball player. I think the Russians were the early mathematicians and the early – that was the early way to quantify baseball and try and do it. And, and now it's every team's got probably a whole department uh, based on that. Anybody listening to you speak for more than five minutes can appreciate your heart for what you're doing. And I just really appreciate just the trailblazing work you're doing in the orthobiologic space, Dr. Buford. Uh, just keep being that watchman on the wall on social media. And, and I really appreciate you coming on the show just to, to share your life with us. I appreciate the invitation. I, I love I love listening to the podcast as well and, and watching what you do. And I appreciate what you do. But um, yeah, we'll stay in touch for sure, Kevin. I, I think this is great. 
Wow, that was some great stuff. Dr. Buford really hung a snowman with that conversation, along with Johnny Cafaro for the four-bagger. I got to get all that baseball lingo out in one episode. Be sure to check the show notes today because there's going to be a lot of good links for what we've talked about today, especially if you're a surgeon listening or you're a rep listening and have a surgeon that might benefit from integrating ultrasound into their practice and would like an opportunity to learn hands-on from one of the best of the best, Dr. Don Buford, of course, then check it out. Well, hopefully going deep and wide this week for you doesn't involve this song stuck in your head. Hopefully it's a can of corn, a fly ball that is so, so easy to catch. Hope you all have an awesome week and wish you great success in all of your selling endeavors. Device Nation.